Welcome to the Film Flux audio series, audio versions of the videos from my YouTube channel. Let's get cracking. Today, It's a Wonderful Life is part of the pantheon of Christmas movies. It would be fair to say that, for a lot of people, it's a beloved tradition to sit around the screen during the holidays and watch the struggle and spiritual redemption of George Bailey. It is a film that is synonymous with hope and the idea that no one is a failure. But that wasn't always the case. There was a time when It's a Wonderful Life was as bleak and desolate for its creators as it was for George Bailey leading up to the moment where he decides to kill himself. And it stayed that way for over 30 years. It's a Wonderful Life is based on the short story by Philip Van Doren Stern called The Greatest Gift. After working on his short story for four years, Stern was unable to find a publisher and decided to send copies of it to his friends for Christmas. Eventually, a copy found its way into the hands of a producer who decided to purchase the rights to the story in 1944. After a few attempts at a screenplay, the studio sold the rights to Liberty Films in 1945, an independent studio started by Frank Capra and Samuel J. Briskin. Capra had been a director for big Hollywood studios and was hoping, in part, that Liberty Films would allow artistic freedom for himself and other directors. The first film released by Liberty Films was It's a Wonderful Life. After coming back from the war, Capra saw the script for It's a Wonderful Life as a powerful medicine for the disillusionment he and others returning from the war felt. Capra described the film like this. It was the story I'd been waiting for all my life. Small town, a man, a good man, ambitious, but so busy helping others, life seems to pass him by. Despondent, he wishes he'd never been born. He gets his wish. Through the eyes of a guardian angel, he sees the world as it would have been had he not been born. Wow, what an idea. Capra was notorious for having a naive faith in humanity, particularly in his films. And with Capra's ability to elicit emotion from the viewer, some of his films were referred to as Capricorn. Tell that guy I'm giving him the chance of a lifetime, do you hear? The chance of a lifetime. He says it's the chance of a lifetime. Instilling hope in others was not uncommon for Capra's films. Like his film Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. A story about a naive but extremely principled man who ends up a United States Senator who fights against political corruption. And you know that you fight for the lost causes harder than for any others. Yes, you even die for them. It was this same hopeful idealism that Capra wanted to infuse into Liberty Films' first feature, It's a Wonderful Life. Just as Frank Capra was returning from the war, so was actor Jimmy Stewart. Stewart was a familiar leading man in Hollywood, starring in over a dozen films like Vivacious Lady, You Can't Take It With You, and The Philadelphia Story. While Stewart had been at war, younger actors had been taking the lead roles that would normally have gone to Stewart, and Stewart was worried he might not have a place in Hollywood anymore. If you watch Stewart as George Bailey, there's a lot of rage in his performance. George Bailey was really frustrated about where he was in life, and so was Jimmy Stewart. And that goes for you, too. And it goes for you, too. Stewart and Capper weren't sure if the film was going to work or if their careers in Hollywood were going to work. Stewart was also more ravaged by the war. According to Robert Matson, who wrote a book about Stewart, Jimmy was still having nightmares and sweats. He was barely keeping food down and living off peanut butter and ice cream. Matson commented on Stewart's performance. 
The other scene that always made me uncomfortable but now means so much more to me is when he's in his living room and he's throwing things and screaming at his kids. And his wife and children look at him like, who is this man? Who is this monster? And that is so reflective of what millions of families faced, looking at these strangers who came back from the war with this rage. Stewart played it beautifully. He just lets it out. It's a Wonderful Life was also reflective to audiences of the day in other ways. The town the movie takes place in, Bedford Falls, was designed to have a small town feel. The town was actually a constructed set, including 75 buildings and spanning across four acres. Jeannie Basinger, author of the It's a Wonderful Life book, said, Anybody who grew up in a small town in the 1940s can easily believe that Bedford Falls is their hometown. Bedford Falls is, in fact, the first thing we see in the film. A sign, a street with cars and snow, a corner drugstore, a small pub, a garage, and homes. We hear a narration as we go through the town, coming from people praying for George Bailey. I owe everything to George Bailey. Help him, dear father. We don't see the people themselves, we see the buildings they're in. This choice roots part of the message of George Bailey in the film that community is more important than the individual. The next thing we see in the film is heaven. It's Wonderful Life is the most religious of Capra's films, despite the fact that religion was not very important to Capra. While there is a lot of potential interpretations and viewpoints in how religious It's a Wonderful Life is, religion is not portrayed very seriously in the film. Heaven is made up of heavenly bodies that blink when they speak. Clarence, the angel in making, is introduced with childlike music. Clarence makes jokes about drinking alcohol. How am I doing, Joseph? Thanks. No, I didn't have a drink. And other characters in the film make jokes about Clarence and his behavior. Uh oh. Somebody just made it. Made what? Every time you hear a bell rings, it means that some angel's just got his wings. Get me! I'm giving out wings! <laughs> Though there are heavier, more serious moments, like in the scene where George prays. According to Stewart, when he says the line, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. As I said those words, I felt the loneliness and hopelessness of people who had nowhere to turn, and my eyes filled with tears. I broke down sobbing. This was not planned at all, but the power of that prayer the realization that our Father in Heaven is there to help the hopeless had reduced me to tears. There is a strong current of decency throughout It's a Wonderful Life, and it is built on the values of George's father, Peter Bailey. Peter Bailey looks at the common man before he looks at himself. He feels that his small building and loan is providing an affordable option for people to build homes. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof, and walls, and fireplace. And we're helping him get those things in our shabby little office. Something the villain of the film, Mr. Potter, refers to as bad business. Are you running a business or a charity war? Well, all my Not with my money. Peter Bailey's building alone relies more on friendship and character than it does strict rules. If someone falls on hard times and can't pay their loan, the building alone assumes they're good for it and waits for them to be able to pay their loan instead of foreclosing on their house. You can see Peter Bailey's ideals whenever George looks out for someone before he looks out for himself. When there's a run at the bank, George tries to instill his father's values in the community. 
Now listen to me. I, I beg of you not to do this thing. If Potter gets a hold of this building and alone, there'll never be another decent house built in this town. This high ideal, set down by Peter Bailey, is what informs George's decisions. As the wall in the office reads in the scene before George appeals to the community, all you can take with you is that which you've given away. It's why George skips going to college and sends his brother instead, so he can keep the building and loan going. I'm leaving. I'm leaving right now. I'm going to school. This is my last chance. Uncle Billy here. He's your man. But George, they'll vote with Potter otherwise. It's why when his brother comes back from college, George gives up on his dreams of traveling again, so his brother can work his dream job. And it's why George gives his honeymoon money away, so that the building and loan can stay open. Though, the initial idea to give away the money comes from George's wife, Mary. Mary is a curious character in It's a Wonderful Life. Considering the year of the film, it might not be fair to look at Mary through the feminist lens, but if you did, it would complicate both how she and the film are viewed. Mary is a little too perfect. She loves George unconditionally and, seemingly, without reason. You don't like coconuts? Say, brainless. Don't you know where coconuts come from? And I'm going to have a couple of harems and maybe three or four wives. George Bailey, I'll love you till the day I die. She supports his idea of adventure and supports his unstoppable urge to take care of the community of Bedford Falls. Her only aspirations are to marry George and live in the old Granville house. Remember the night we broke through windows in this old house? This is what I wished for. And the only time she ever seems to get upset is when she thinks she can't have those things. Mary represents the stalwart idea that, when everything seems to be going wrong in our lives, there's still hope. It's an important notion not just to the film, but the filmmakers themselves. Capper advanced the release of It's a Wonderful Life to December 1946, so it would be in consideration for the Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Picture, Actor, Director, Sound Recording, and Editing but it didn't win any of them, except for a technical award for their innovation in artificial snowflakes. The film was supposed to be a signal to Capper that he would be able to make the kind of films he wanted. More hopeful, soul-searching films. While Jimmy Stewart wanted reassurance that he could start over in Hollywood as a leading man. And when the film lost money and didn't win any awards, their prayers weren't answered. When Capper's film and studio failed, he became disillusioned with an increasingly cynical industry. To Capra, it seemed, the hopeful films he wanted to create were out of fashion. Liberty Films was sold off after one more picture. Capra made a few more Hollywood films before taking a sort of early retirement from Hollywood in the early 50s. Stewart, on the other hand, managed to go on being a leading man, but he had to do so with even more insecurities after It's a Wonderful Life didn't perform like he'd hoped. He received a lot of mixed reviews in films that weren't always financially successful for a few years you boys get the business before getting a career resurgence in the 50s can you see me driving down to the fashion salon in a jeep as we learn from george bailey life doesn't always work out the way you want it to you realize what this means it means bankruptcy and scandal and prison that's what it means one of us is going to jail well it's not going to be me not right away anyway Due to a clerical error, It's a Wonderful Life's copyright was not renewed when it expired in 1974, and the film became public domain, so any local TV station could air it for free. And in playing the film so much, the film became the beloved classic it is today. It took 30 years, but 
After the film's long journey, both Capper and Stewart view It's a Wonderful Life as their favorite film they worked on. For them, It's a Wonderful Life was an answer to a crisis of faith. Faith in themselves, faith in the industry, and faith in humanity. Their extraordinary efforts weren't just for the film's sake, but for their own. Liberty Films put forth an inflated budget of $3 million for the film. In the scene where Stewart unexpectedly broke down in tears, Capper had not zoomed in with the camera, so he and his editor zoomed in the picture frame by frame in post-production to create the effect of a zoom. It's hard to put that kind of work and hope into something and not see it pay off. But in addition to an unrenewed copyright, It's a Wonderful Life succeeded because its ideals are universal. Decency, love, hope, and the idea that no one is a failure. These are messages we want to hear year-round, but particularly during the holidays with the new year and hope on the horizon. You could look at George Bailey's glimpse of his potential future as a kind of parable for the potential futures Capra and Stewart saw for themselves. Bleak and miserable, a world overrun with cynicism and lewdness. And in that moment, George looks for hope. He looks for Mary. Where is Mary? Where is she? she? Where is she? She's just about to close up the library! She's the one that makes everything okay. She's the one that helps George make sense of the world. An unwavering love that refuses to let him fall. Mary seems a little too perfect because she's the reflection of Capra's hope for the ideal in us. That we will love without compromise. That we will see value in and rejuvenate the broken things in this world. And that... When those closest to us are at their lowest, we won't allow them to fall. It's no surprise that the people in the town show up because Mary called them for help. There's this line Mary starts as she's welcoming Mr. Martini to his new home. Bread, that this house may never know hunger. Salt, that life may always have flavor. And wine, that joy and prosperity may reign forever. At the end of the film, one of the final lines comes from Mary. Just before Harry gives his toast, Mary says, Mr. Martini, how about some wine? So that joy and prosperity may reign forever. To my big brother George, the richest man in town. For George, for Mary, for Capra, for Stuart, and for all of us. If you like what you've heard here, check out the video version on my YouTube channel, link in show notes. Thanks for listening.